Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about a tidal wave, a flood right in the heart of London, a terrifying wall of heavy, fast-flowing liquid, so fierce it left a trail of death in its wake. Only this wasn't caused by a river or rain. This very unnatural disaster was entirely man-made. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 105, Mayu and the Man-Made Tidal Wave. Today, I'm standing on Great Russell Street in Bloomsbury, WC1. Two streets north of the forgotten inferno on Denmark Place. One street east of the eatery where Jack Tratzett massacred his entire family. Two streets west of the misreported stabbings on Russell Square. And just a short stone's throw from the end of the brutal killing spree of Daniel Gonzalez. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Great Russell Street is an anonymous little side street which connects the pricey electronic shops of Tottenham Court Road, where inflation runs riot, logic is lost, and the ludicrous cost of every item makes you go, Sorry mate, how much? All the way down to Southampton Row, where hotel prices induce heart attacks, meals require a mortgage, and even a small dollop of ice cream gets a frosty reception. In fact, The only people who walk down this street are lost tourists. Having uttered that familiar phrase, Excuse please, where is British Museum? 
who vaguely follow my directions of It's past the giant Freddie Mercury, right to the YMCA, down a bit, dodge to the crack addicts and straight ahead. Only to wonder which newsagent, car park or burger bar, is actually the British Museum. This side of Great Russell Street has a real wealth of very old buildings and very new buildings, with an odd epicentre of modern monstrosities in and around the corner of Dyot Street. And although porter was a hugely popular drink, no trace of Mayo & Co's infamous horseshoe brewery exists. At present, on this spot, sits an uninspiring piece of brutalist architecture, cobbled together from a vague grey mishmash of concrete and glass, known as the Congress Centre. A conference hall, meeting point and series of office spaces. It is also home to the TUC, the Trades Union Congress, and USDOR, the Union of Shop, Distributive and Allied Workers. Two groups who fight hard for better pay, rights, safety and working conditions for every one of Britain's workers in small and big businesses. Sadly, both were established too late to help the traumatised workers at the Horseshoe Brewery, as a colossal explosion and flood wrecked countless homes and lives, sending many of London's poorest to an early grave, all caused by a man-made disaster in the pursuit of progress. As it was here, on Monday the 17th of October 1814, at 5.30pm, that the structural failure of a simple iron hoop would unleash a deadly tidal wave which would change these streets forever. It may seem strange to have a brewery in the heart of London's West End, with the persistent clank of lump hammers, the bray of dray horses, and a thick sweet cloud of smoky malt belching from four towering chimney stacks as it bellowed down Oxford Street and drifted into Fitzrovia and Soho. But it wasn't. In Soho alone, there were two breweries, the Lion and the Golden on Broadwick Street, with two more, Ayres and Davids, on the appropriately named Brewer Street, and on Glasshouse Street, just off Piccadilly Circus, there were long lines of factories producing an endless supply of ceramic, pewter and glass drinking vessels for the pubs, clubs and patrons that the breweries supplied. Beer wasn't illicit, as in the early 1800s, with no sewer system, drainage, and street pumps whose water was only fit for washing. As beer was brewed at a high temperature, even children would drink a weak beer for breakfast, just to keep their bodies hydrated and healthy. They even used it to brush their teeth. In the 1800s, beer was just an ordinary part of everyday life for men, women and children. Dating back to 1623, when the Horseshoe was little more than a small tavern. The Horseshoe Brewery opened in 1764 and covered almost a square block. With the length of its yard rubbing against the brick and timber houses on Great Russell Street, 
The backyard, stretching right up to the slums of New Street, covering two-thirds of Bainbridge Street, and with its ornate steel gates at the junction of Oxford Street and Tottenham Court Road. It also had a side yard at what would later become New Oxford Street. By 1785, as the 11th largest producer of porter, a dark malty beer with a nutty smoky taste, which is served at room temperature and is blessed with a long shelf life, the Horseshoe Brewery produced 40,000 barrels of porter a year. But by 1809, with the site being purchased by the ambitious master brewer Sir Henry Mayhew and his partner Charles Young, later of Young's Brewery, by 1812, Mayhew & Co. had become the fifth largest producer in London, brewing 103,000 barrels of porter a year, a total of 35 million pints. And although his rapid success let him acquire his rival, the Close & Co. Brewery of Bermondsey, Sir Henry knew that he was way behind the industry leader, Samuel Whipret, whose network of breweries churned out a whopping 150 barrels, amounting to a staggering 50 million pints of porter a year. Sir Henry needed to be bigger and better to compete with his competition. To achieve this, in the preceding years, he followed his father's successful example. To create this heady, full-bodied brew, Mayu's brewery had used a large, sparklingly clean steam engine to rhythmically stir barrow loads of baked malt into a wide drum of boiling water, churning and chugging this superheated liquid until, through a series of thick lead pipes, it was pumped into a fermentation vat. Porter usually matures for a few months, or up to a year for the best. But to achieve a high volume, and to keep a consistent flavour and strength, Mayu's porter was fermented in large wooden vats. Constructed of thick oak pillars, these barrel-shaped vats were often 12 feet wide by 23 feet high, holding up to 18,000 imperial gallons apiece, and weighing a colossal 571 tons. To keep this heavy and intensely hot liquid from buckling the structure, each giant vat was wrapped in a series of 22 iron hoops, each weighing 700 pounds. And standing end to end, down the three sides of the brewery, stood almost 70 gargantuan vats. The 1800s was an era of rapid industrialization, where big business strived to meet the demand of an ever-expanding population, and mechanization had begun to make everything bigger, better, cheaper and faster. But it was only a matter of time until something broke. The real devastation of this technological failure wouldn't just impact on Sir Henry's business and his profits, but on the poor wretches who were forced to live in the dank dark shadow of the Horseshoe Brewery. Commonly known as the Rookery, set across from Soho, this filthy decaying slum sprawled over eight acres of the city's filthiest and most squalid hovels. From the brewery's storeroom wall at the back of Great Russell Street, 
to the boundary of St Giles Church, in and around where Centrepoint now stands. Dubbed Little Island, or the Holy Land, owing to an influx of Irish Catholic immigrants, the rookery was a semi-derelict rabbit's warren of crumbling tenements, sinister alleys and open cesspits, perched to the precipice of rickety lines of crumbling shacks, unfit for human habitation. And whereas Kensington averaged roughly 10 people per acre, the rookery crammed in more than 200 souls into the same sized area. Packed full of a ragged haggard people, they lived a life so depressing that hope was nothing but a dream. Crime was rife, sex was cheap, lives were disposable, and to numb the never-ending ache of their bleak little existence. From a nest of seedy brothels and gin shops, its inhabitants often staggered, high on a lethal mix of homemade hooch, a fizzing stew of potato peel, acid, turps, and sometimes urine, as they drank themselves into a slow, soporific death. So depressing and debauched was this slum, it was said to be the inspiration for William Hogarth's infamous painting of Gin Lane. And yet, around it, big business continued to flourish. This was no place to raise a family, and yet many people had no choice. Bathed in the sunless, claggy shadow of the brewery's 20-foot high walls, spewing chimney stacks, and its towering storeroom, stacked high and wide with 23-foot high fermentation tanks of bubbling porter. The rookery was dark, dank, and dripping with the thick smog of the endless clank of industry. With no light, no fresh air, and no sewers, unscrupulous landlords would charge their impoverished tenants for the right to live higher and further off the festering feces-strewn street. Condemning the poorest of the poor to live at the lowest level. That meant that, when the rains came, the filthy streets were soaked and the cesspits overflowed. Into these crowded basements, the sewage always ran. For those in the rookery, life was hard. But for an unfortunate few, it would also be short. As a faceless people shunned by society, and just as quickly forgotten by history, the only reason we know their names and a few scant details about their life is because of how tragically they died. Prior to this disaster, which was largely underwritten, and yet tallied more deaths than were recorded in the Great Fire of London of 1666, the eight people who perished meant nothing to no one but those that they loved. And certainly, they meant nothing to Sir Henry Mayhew, in whose shadow they struggled. At the Tavistock Arms at 22 Great Russell Street, 14-year-old Eleanor Cooper earned a pittance as a servant girl to keep her family fed. On the first floor of 3 New Street, Elizabeth Smith was a carer for four-year-old Hannah Banfield and three-year-old Sarah Bates. And next door, in the bowels of a dank basement at 4 New Street, aided by Catherine Butler, Mary Mulvey 
and her three-year-old son Thomas. Anne Saville made the last preparations for an Irish wake. As laid out before her, draped in a homemade shroud, as they were too poor for a pine box, was the body of Anne's two-year-old son. Unlike a crazed maniac, disasters are unscrupulously fair, killing the well and the sick, the able and the disabled, the young and the old alike, and often the rich and the poor. But not in this case. None of the eight had done anything to deserve to be chosen, and the only reason they were chosen was because they were there. And although this would be their last day alive, for the eight, it was just an ordinary day. Monday the 17th of October 1814 was an unusual day for a flood, let alone one in the heart of the city. After a long hot summer, with very little rain to feed the crops, to refill the water wells, or to mercifully dampen the stench, of more than 1,600 unwashed souls in a baking hot slum. Thankfully, the city was, and still is, sustained by 21 hidden rivers, such as the Tyburn, the Kilburn, the Fleet, the Westbourne and the Walbrook, which all ran under London streets, supplying water and a makeshift sewer. But none of them were near the point of flooding, and the week's weather ahead was good. As for a tidal wave, of epic proportions, in the West End. Although the River Thames is fast and tidal, it rarely breaks its banks. When it does, it does so slowly. And being more than a mile south of Soho, and with the North Sea a full 40 miles away, that day the embankment would remain dry, and a tidal wave so far inland would be unheard of. And yet, it would happen. George Crick had been the storehouse clerk for Mayo & Co. for the last 17 years. Six since Sir Henry had acquired the Horseshoe Brewery, and 11 years prior at Mayo's Griffin Brewery on Lickapon Street in Clerkenwell, where even larger fermentation vats were stored. He was loyal, trusted and experienced. So much so that he was able to get his brother John a job here as a labourer. Covering almost two acres, the Horseshoe Brewery was the epitome of efficiency, with every square metre split into its component parts for the production of porter. Everything from mixing to boiling, to pumping to fermenting, to bottling to delivery. And 50 foot off the ground, just above the storeroom, sat a second level for lead pipes, air vents and inspection. To the uninitiated, the Horseshoe Brewery was noisy, hot and clammy, but ruthlessly organised with strict systems in place, as any deviation from their tried and trusted methods could spoil a vat of porter, each of which cost £40,000 apiece. At the behest of its owners, Sir Henry and Mr Young, everything was noted, scrutinised and signed off. At roughly 4.30pm, as George Crick passed the back of the storeroom that butted up just eight inches from the wall of the New Street slum, 
on one of the 23-foot-tall fermentation vats, he had spotted that an iron hoop had slipped. As a professional, he wasn't concerned, and for good reason. Size-wise, the vat wasn't the biggest. At only 10 years old, it was far from the oldest. And being full of a more mature porter, which had been left to ferment for 10 months, being a feisty brew, as its gases build up, the vat's lid was prone to blow off. Hence a gap of 10 centimetres was left to let it breathe. Being the third lowest hoop from the bottom of the vat, it wasn't integral to its structure. As one of 23 700-pound iron hoops which secured the oak timbers, its slippage wasn't an emergency. And as the 571-ton oak vat was prone to expand and contract as it heated and cooled, at least three times a year, a hoop would slip, only to be repaired or replaced. As part of protocol, George inspected it. The vat's bottom was level, the sides were stable, there was no leaks of any gases or liquids, and the vat was creaking. No more than 18,000 imperial gallons of slowly fermenting porter should. A few moments later, as part of a formal process, George Crick informed his superior, Mr. Young, who was also the son of the co-owner, Charles Young, that he had discovered a burst hoop. It would take several hours to repair the ironwork, one week to build a new hoop, and to get the wheels of progress moving, George would need to put in a written request to Messrs. Mayer and Young, which he did. And that was it. One of 22 iron hoops on a medium-sized, fully functional vat had slipped off one of 70 vessels, which sat in a well-maintained storeroom with a solid track record in safety. It didn't creak, crack or crumble. It didn't split, fizz or shudder. There was no forewarning of what was to happen, no history of incidents of where it had, and no clues to the fury of what would be unleashed. No one in the storeroom suspected a thing, as if they had, they would surely have ran for their lives. No one knows what happened. Maybe an oak timber was loose, another hoop was weak, or the 18,000 gallons of warm gassy porter was unstable. Either way, at roughly 5.30pm, whilst George Crick stood over the storeroom, on the overhead platform with a written request for the hoops repair in his hand, the vat shattered. Even in a storeroom as colossal as this, George's eardrums popped as the air pressure peaked and a violent shockwave knocked him off his feet as the ceiling, walls and floors around him quaked. With its weak point at the rear, having imploded, then exploded, it unleashed a force so fierce it was as if a giant fist had crushed the vat like a tin can, splitting its two-ton oak timbers like brittle twigs, which shot across the brewery like it was under attack by an army armed with spears, and snapping the 700-pound iron hoops like a petulant child 
with an unwanted birthday bracelet as thick chunks of sharp shards of hard metal were flung fast, smashed and thudded against the opposing walls. So powerful was the explosion, it demolished a 25-foot high and two-and-a-half brick-thick wall at the rear of the brewery, toppling several of the four-storey timbers which held up parts of the storehouse roof. In a chain reaction of catastrophe, the vast fast deluge of thick heavy porter, which spewed from the shattered vat like a giant wet wall of terror, caused devastation in its wake. Knocking off the stopcock of a neighbouring vat, the force of the blast smashed hogsheads of beer, barrels and casks, flooding the cellar and the storeroom in seconds with almost 300,000 imperial gallons of thick sticky porter. That's one million pints of beer, or half an Olympic-sized swimming pool, which flooded like a fast wall of warm sticky liquid, out of the brewery gates, up Tottenham Court Road, and down Oxford Street. Thankfully, having just gone five o'clock, with the brewery reduced to a skeleton crew, only a handful of traumatised workers waded waist-deep in the warm sticky stew, calling and searching for those who were missing amongst the shattered casks, floating wood and piles of rubble in a black steaming sea. Thirty minutes later, three men, including George's brother John, were pulled alive from the ruins, and being blessed with only minor injuries, all were taken to hospital, treated and discharged later that day. And although some of the men made a good recovery, others were unable to ever return to work. Given the colossal scale of the disaster, it was lucky that no one had died inside the brewery. But outside in the slum, that was a different story. At roughly 5.30pm, as George Crick stood in the storeroom with a written request in his hand, the weakened vat suddenly shattered. In a volatile explosion, the extreme pressure smashed apart the 25-foot high, 60-foot long and 22-inch thick wall at the rear of the brewery, which led to the rookery. So explosive was the blast the bricks were thrown 200 feet away. Mercifully unoccupied, the crumbling slum houses at 9 and 10 New Street were pummeled to dust as a whirlwind of timber and brick reduced it to rubble, smashing apart two more homes and scattering a thick blanket of debris halfway down New Street, so that everything, from the basements to the first and second floors, was strewn with the brewery's wreckage. Had this accident occurred an hour or two later, when more families were home and the streets and houses were full, this disaster may have claimed even more lives. But the loss would be no less tragic. As the brewery's brick wall burst, having just sat down to tea in their ground floor lodging at the back of a shop at 23 Great Russell Street, 
hearing a cataclysmic crash, the Goodwin family were swept off their seats and spat out into the street by what witnesses described as a 15-foot-high tsunami of porter. A thick black wave of ferocity, which left them wet, shaken and choking, but thankfully unhurt. Next door, in the backyard of the Tavistock Arms public house at 22 Great Russell Street, 14-year-old Eleanor Cooper was earning a few pennies to feed her family by washing pots at a pump at the base of the brick wall when it collapsed. As hundreds of tons of brick and timber rained down upon this young girl, being pinned by timber, amazingly, Eleanor was unhurt. But at 8.20pm, although she was still standing upright when they rescued her, having suffocated, there was nothing anyone could do. With half of New Street smashed, flattened and strewn with rubble two stories deep, many families lay trapped, only to be dug out hours and even days later. But this debris was their saviour as with so many basements blocked by bricks, this tsunami of porter had to go somewhere. Some residents were swept out into the street, and some scaled tables to escape the torrent. But others were not so lucky. On the first floor of 3 New Street, after a gruelling day at work, Mary Banfield was taking tea with her child's carer, Elizabeth Smith. As the fast flood hit, the thick black wave slammed Mary out of the first floor window. And although she landed broken, bloody and unconscious, she was later found alive, but only just. Sadly, seconds later, as the crumbling structure buckled, its top two floors collapsed and crushed Elizabeth Smith the carer, three-year-old Sarah Bates, and being trapped... Mary's four-year-old daughter, Hannah, who was found drowned in her own bed. And although this was a horrific sight to witness, the worst was yet to come. As a rabbit's warren of dead-end streets and tight alleys with no drains or sewers, with her ramshackle lodging at number four New Street, far enough from the blast zone so only a smattering of rubble had barricaded her door, the full structure was still intact. But now, with 18,000 gallons of liquid unleashed, there was no way for her to escape the flood and no way to stop the tsunami. Having finished preparing for the wake, as her two-year-old child lay in state, a thick wave of dark porter flooded the basement later found floating face down in the cellar. Everyone, from the boy's grieving mother to the wake's three mourners, Catherine Butler, Mary Mulvey and her young son Thomas, had drowned. The aftermath was described as a scene of absolute reverence, as onlookers stood in silence so that rescuers and frantic families could listen out for the cries of loved ones still trapped amidst the rubble. As right into the night, 
and through the following day, cartloads of debris and buckets of porter were cleared by hand. Miraculously, countless numbers of people escaped with their lives, and only a dozen needed to be seen by a doctor. But in total, eight innocent people had lost their lives. Out of respect, the brewery's watchman charged people a penny to see the smashed vats. And at the ship public house, and in the horseshoe's yard, the shrouded coffins of the dead lay in state, as long lines of mourners clinked pennies into a plate, which paid for all of their funerals. And although she was too poor to bury her beloved boy in a pine box, finally Anne Savile had a casket for her dead son, and now herself, as his grieving mother and baby were buried together in St Giles' Churchyard. On Wednesday the 18th of October 1814, just two days later, an inquest into the disaster was held at the St Giles' workhouse. Eight people were dead, but with the coroner and the jury reassured that this disaster wasn't an act of negligence, but an act of God. No criminal damages were brought against its owners. The Horseshoe Brewery returned to business, and Sir Henry Mayhew was compensated for the £30,000 worth of damages and loss that he had sustained, almost £1.75 million today. But the families received nothing. And yet, more than 200 years on, there has never been a memorial to those who died. Those who were poor, faceless, nameless, and forgotten. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. I hope you enjoyed the episode, but if you fancy some extra stuff, which isn't compulsory, you can stay behind like a naughty schoolboy or girl and be forced to listen to Extra Mile, which is after the break. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Sheridan Fuller, Laurie King and Kelly Garner. I thank you all for your support. It's very much appreciated. Plus a thank you to Darren DeRosa for your very kind donation. I thank you too. And with a thank you to everyone who continues to listen to the podcast and spreads the word to their pals about how much they love it. That is hugely appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. <laughs> Bloody hell. That was a difficult one. <laughs> I had to re- st- try and record that four times. I did it first, it just didn't work. Second time, did it again. I just couldn't get the words right this time. It was really annoying. I'd slightly overwritten it in places. And it was a little bit wordy. So, oh, it killed me. So I, had to, I got, I kept getting almost through it and then go, no, I hate it and I'm to start again. Oh, anyway. Hey, everyone. Welcome to um, Extra Mile, the extra bit, the non compulsory bit. You can join us if you like. You can listen to some extra stuff. You don't have to. It's it's not essential. I'm going to make a cup of tea. I'm going to grab myself something to eat. I'm opening up some windows at the moment because it is bloody hot. We're in the middle of a heat wave. And it is bloody hot. It's not just hot. It's sweaty, clammy, horrible, that kind of weather. Really disgusting. Oh, yuck. So yeah, oh, so I've been trying to trying to do this episode in here, and it's bloody typical. It just started to rain this morning as well, and because because I'm in a, a steel boat, everything echoes. So you hear one raindrop, and it goes bang, 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 bang. Oh, so yeah, that's been a nightmare. So that's taken a long time to get this done. Anyway, we're done start editing that shortly so uh hope you're all well hope you're surviving <sighs> hope you're surviving the heat oh it's too much isn't it it's too much i can't cope i can't cope with heat heat can bugger off oh i really hate it anyway um uh, i don't have a cake this week which is odd but what i do have 
finally they arrived. So I think you may. I mentioned probably on one, I think it was on one of the Meander Miles, the Piccadilly Circus one, that uh, a lovely gentleman, uh, Ian, uh, bit dead on Twitter, had sent me uh, a lovely gift. Uh, unfortunately, because everything goes through a PO box, what tends to happen is sometimes uh, I go there and go to my PO box, and I'm number eighty-three, and I go and I what I do is I grab all my parcels and I sit in the shop and I go through all my post and anything that's not mine I give it back, and then I, I sort I can sort it all out. But my neighbour, one of my neighbours, and I don't know who, has a tendency to go in, pick up all their parcels, and then they disappear for like five or six weeks, or sometimes two months or three months. They don't bother to check, and then they go, oh, oh I've got someone else's parcel here. Oh, I'll just stick it in the court. And it's, oh, it's happened so many, it happens with mates' presents and things like that. Anyway, Ian's gift, very kind gift, didn't turn up. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, hopefully it'll turn up. It has. It finally turned up. It's like six weeks later, so it's finally turned up. So it was a lovely collection of the, the McVitie's range of digestive biscuits. So there is the, uh, I think I mentioned it before, the marmalade one, which is really nice, very subtle. Uh, the strawberries and cream, which I'm working on now, which is very nice. And then there's also a Bakewell tart one, which I don't think is my favourite one because the, the cherry is just a bit too strong, but the marmalade one is excellent. So I advise people to rush out and get that. So thank you, Ian. They did turn up. I am I'm working through them now and weirdly i may not be surviving it but the biscuit the chocolate is surviving the heat unheard of i don't know what they put in there but it's unheard of anyway thank you mcvitties i did watch a documentary the other day about mcvitties <laughs> that was very good anyway um I just wanted to say a thank you to everyone. I think I mentioned uh, last time that I, I got a couple of bad reviews. I don't mind bad reviews. They're okay. But these just seemed a little bit unfair. I think I mentioned that someone had... One of the episodes I'd done about, you know, the, uh, 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 a member of the British Army ordering the, the uh, Amaritza massacre, which did happen, you know, it's uh, over 100 years ago. You do, you know, every so often, Joe, if you have a big huge group of like three million people you're bound to get one or two in there who are a bunch of twats anyway uh, these these people got upset about that and they said this guy's anti-british blah, 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 and gave me bad reviews anyway loads of you jumped to the rescue and you were like this you're like did, 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 on your steed and you came charging in and you wrote actually and what one guy had already very kind of you i can't remember your name but your review did make me laugh uh you'd actually written it before that i'd actually done the episode about it and it was very funny <laughs> you'd you'd gone uh i you know what the guy underneath is rambling about uh mike being anti-british and i think your your quote was this guy needs to go and drink himself his milk and i was like oh, that tickled me all day so thank you to everyone who, who uh, left lovely reviews it's very kind of you it really does help negative reviews really drags us down but the good reviews can build us back up and we jump us little podcasts are fighting against the big companies like wondery who as i've mentioned before pay to be at the top uh that's why that's why their podcasts aren't always that good and yet they always seem to be at the top of the charts mm, annoying anyway anyway they're they're doing it for the money we're doing it because we love it there's a difference so um i thought i'd mention something as well i, I mentioned before that you can buy uh you can buy modemar mugs online um should point this out something oh very annoying uh, the Royal Mail and the US po Postal Workers Union had a little bit of a spat. I only found this out very recently. So, originally a £10 mug, if you buy a £10 mug, if I send it to America, it would cost me about £8, which is fine. You know, I can add that on. It's not too it's not too pricey to, for you to receive it. You know, it's I, I don't think it's extortionate. And I, I make like 
like a pound off each one I sell. I don't make much, but that's fine. Anyway, uh, Royal Mail and U.S. Postal Workers Union have had a bit of a, a spat. Um, U.S. Postal Workers Union are saying uh, there's not enough flights coming over, therefore they're not making enough money. Uh, therefore, the Royal Mail have reclassified America as Zone 3. It used to be Zone 1. So it used to be £8 to send things to America. Now it's Zone 3. It's more expensive to send mugs to America than it is to send mugs to Somalia. That's how bad it is. So now I've had to re-amend it on my website. And now it's like, if you're buying a Murder Mile mug, it's £10 for the mug. It's £15 to send it to America. So if you're an American and you want to buy a mug, I would advise finding a friend in Canada or Mexico. Uh, because they're still they're still zone one. It's uh, Hopefully they will resolve this soon. But it's it's a petty spat. And oh, it's annoying. It's annoying. It's frustrating because Europe hasn't changed. Australia! Australia is the other side of the bloody world and they're still cheap. New Zealand, China, I can send it to everywhere. But the the country in the world that gets the most flights coming into it is now more expensive. So, yeah, sorry. So, Royal Mail, and oh, really annoying, I had a bit of a... Uh, I went into the post office to post something and they said it's £15. I went, no, 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 it's not. It's uh, Last check, it was £9.10. They went, no, it's £15.10 now. And I was like, well, why? And they couldn't, no one in the post office could give me a reason. And the Royal Mail's website was out of date. They haven't updated that. So uh, this is also a warning to anyone sending anything to America at the moment. You're going to be screwed. Uh, I think it's different if you buy stuff off at, uh, eBay, though. I think that's different. I think they have a different system. Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention on there as well if you're if you're on uh any social media and you see someone sending around it's a list of serial killers birthdays i posted this on my group the other day lists of serial killers birthdays they're in two lines and it's in alphabetical order and it's a list of serial killers birthdays and it's white yep um just just you know that's mine i did that that's often one of my blogs uh, unfortunately, someone a couple of months ago decided to take it, clip it, rip out all of my stuff and just keep the the text in there. And now it's being shared far and wide and everyone loves it and everyone goes, oh, this is great. Look at this. It's amazing. But it's mine and I don't get any credit for it. And there's no link to a Murder Mile blog on there, which is really frustrating. Um, but I love that everyone seems to like it. It's just, you know, all my hard work is kind of disappeared into the ether and there's kind of no way to protect it so if you do see it floating around uh, do me a little favor just just go on there and say hey everyone this is this was created by murder mile just so you know just the only way i'm going to be able to get any credit for it i never thought i'd create a uh, something that uh, is shared so far and wide i seem to see it everywhere and i keep i keep going oh there's my thing again anyway i'll put a link to the blog on here as well um uh, there's loads of other blogs on there as well that I've done. I've done blogs about not just serial killers' birthdays, but uh, what kind of foods they like, their favourite drinks, favourite pets, you know, weird stuff that uh, people seem to love coming to all the time. So, uh, yeah. <sighs> right, I'm out of breath now. I just put my tea in. I'm just going to give it a stir. And uh, obviously put in some some lovely, lovely powdered milk. It's too hot. It's too hot for um, proper milk. It's like I love a, a little bit of cheese, but the problem is, cheese. It's like it sweats within like it's a day. Meat 
goes off. So yeah, it's uh, oh, the milk is absolutely no no. Oh, right. Uh, let's do some questions, then we'll dive into some details. I don't really know how many details I can add to this because I've already kind of put most of it into the episode. Um, uh, oh, just so you know, if, if ever you're in London and you want to try porter beers, because I know that uh, it's very much a British thing, but I know most people overseas won't really have tried them. Many people in Britain probably haven't either. But... Uh, there's a place at the back of Covent Garden uh, called the Porterhouse. Really good pub, pub, great place to drink. Uh, and they do a wide selection of porter beers. So porters is kind of a thick, dark, as mentioned in the episode. Quite thick, quite dark, quite meaty in a way. Um, not like beers where you serve it cold and it's quite thin. This is kind of like a meal in itself. It's not quite it's not quite like a stout and it's not quite an ale it's kind of a middle ground between them really nice really tasty but as we always say if we go to the porterhouse we always say that in the morning you will have the porterhouse poo and because it's quite a meaty stodgy beer in the morning things were a bit things were a bit woo down there yeah so uh yeah nice thick dark poo in the morning <laughs> yum um also, oh, just so you know, uh, uh, if uh, there are a couple of blog sites out there which mention about, they call it the Great Beer Flood, um, uh, in relation to this uh, this event. And if you look online, there were you'll see some pictures and people go, "Oh, look, here's some photographs of the beer flood." Um, that's not. It, it looks great. It's like a big yard, and it's full of like a massive explosion has happened, and it's uh, you know it's really horrific, and everyone always shares that picture and goes, "Oh look, it's a picture of the beer flood." But firstly, this is happens in what 1814, so you know photography wasn't around. May have just been. No, I don't think it had been invented by then, uh, or, or maybe a basic level of photography. Uh, so there's no photos. What the photo that you're probably seeing online is, I think there was an, a molasses explosion in America about 80 years later. So if you look at the photos, uh, uh, you'll notice that in the in the foreground and the background, there's lots of motor cars. So obviously they wouldn't exist in 1814. Uh, so just so you know, uh, I've posted kind of quite a few pictures on the, uh, the if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll get some pictures for this. You get uh, all the little bit, bits and pieces that I could find. Oh, right. Let's do a quiz. Core Lummy. Right. Out of breath today. Uh, so don't forget, uh, 10 questions. Not all of them will appear in this episode because I might edit this episode down. I think there might be some big sections. I might just junk uh okay question number one uh how long does port how long does a porter by mayu and co take to fully mature so it's question one how long does a a porter by mayu and co take to fully mature for anyone who's a pedantic out there i know that mayu is actually pronounced mukes uh i i deliberately went through and oh it's pronounced mayu and co because it's m-e-u-x but that pronunciation was mukes and i just refuse to say mukes i'm gonna go with the french pronunciation of it uh, i just i just think that was the name that they went with then it was they mispronounced it so I, I, i'm going with mayu mukes sounds like vomit so uh question two uh what was 14 year old eleanor cooper doing in the backyard of the tavistock pub That's what was Ellen, what was 14 year old Eleanor Cooper doing in the backyard of the Tavistock pub? 
Tough Duck Pub obviously no longer exists. Uh, question three. Name one of the five hidden rivers under London which I mentioned. There's 21 in total, but I mentioned five. Uh, question four. Um, interesting, one of them is named after the original name of Oxford Street. Uh, question four. And the other one is is uh, an area where Dennis Nielsen used to work. There we go. <laughs> question four. Kensington averaged roughly 10 people per acre, but how many people were squeezed into each acre of the rookery? That was question four. Oh, question five. Uh, the inquest took place at St Giles Workhouse, but which other child ended up... So the, Oh, sorry, I should really put this at the start. This isn't associated with this episode. This is associated with a very much earlier episode of Murder Mile. Uh, so the inquest, the inquest took place at the St Giles Workhouse. But which other child, as mentioned in an earlier episode of Murder Mile, would end up dead at the hands of an officious little man who worked there? So what was his name? What was the child's name who died? Uh, question six. How heavy was just one of the iron hoops? Uh, another weight question. Section, question seven. What weight was the vat which broke? Question eight. How many pints of beer were unleashed that day? Uh, question nine. What was George Crick's brother's name and what did he do as a job? And question 10. As featured in an earlier episode, which young man shot his father, his deaf sister and his disabled brother, as well as himself, in a building immediately opposite the Horseshoe Brewery? There you go. Right. Uh, let's just see what we've got. I added pretty much everything into this episode. So let's see what we got. There's a nice description here of the rookery. Um, it says, uh, you have scarce gone a hundred yards when you're in the rookery. The change is marvelous. I think they're using marvelous, not in a great way. Uh, squalid children, haggard men with long uncombed hair in rags, most of them smoking. Well, there you go. Uh, many speaking Irish, women without shoes or stockings, um, with a single garment confined to the waist by a bit of string. Wolfish looking dogs, decaying vegetables strewn the pavement, low public houses, linen hanging across the street to dry. The population stagnant in the midst of activity lounging about in remnants of shooting jackets, leaning on the window frames, blocking up courts and alleys, with young boys gathering around, looking exhausted as, as though they had not been to bed. Uh, as mentioned, this was kind of the inspiration for uh, William Hogarth's famous painting of Gin Lane. Gin Lane is that one where you see that kind of, it's a street scene, and everyone's in the street getting pissed, and there's like a lady there, and she's really drunk, and she's so drunk that she's dro she drops her baby on the floor, and... Um, what else have we got? What else have we got? Uh, I really did try and put in as much as I could into here. Uh, bah, 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 bah. It's really hard to find a lot of details about these people. That's the problem is many of these names are incorrect as well. The street, um, what buildings they were in is hard to pin down as well because quite often people just said 
do you know it was on New Street or it was a house on New Street? Because don't forget, a lot of people wouldn't really have numbers. Why would you have numbers, really? Um, numbering. I think I, I watched a documentary recently where they were saying that numbering is quite a modern system. Do you know, it's only like 100, 200 years old and it's kind of, it was more kind of reserved for kind of the posher houses. So really, we don't really, because obviously they would be the people who would receive post. Uh, and that's the reason why we have numbered houses. But it's, you know, in that era, why would you number most of these houses except for something like the census? Uh, but this is in an era where there's very few details about these people. So even like dates and ages are wrong. Let's have a look. So Eleanor Cooper, we know that she was 14. She was one of the youngest. Uh, Mary Mulvey, who was the married woman who was down in the uh, drowned in the basement. Her name is also down as Murray as well. There's two versions of her spelling of Murray. Her son Thomas is down as a Murray, but she could also be a Mulvey. Uh, he was fathered by her former husband. Uh, we've got uh, obviously uh, Hannah Banfield and her mother Mary. Her mother Mary survived. She was the four-year-old who. Uh, um, who uh, uh, drowned in her own bed uh, Sarah Bates who was there who was being looked after by Elizabeth Smith but we don't know who Sarah Bates's mother was uh, Anne Savile was there she was the grieving mother um, there's multiple references to Anne being 60 years old uh, she's also down there as 40 35 so there's multi this is and, and this is an era where um, you know the records aren't on the national census they're not in the archives you know there's nothing there so you can only go with what you can kind of find same there Catherine Butler a widow 65 years old but even that could be wrong as well uh, what else was there let's see uh, I think I put in all the descriptions about the vat that was in there, big old vats, and that wasn't even the biggest. They did say that even though it was a 20, 23 foot high vat weighing la di da di da tons, which will be one of the questions, uh, at the Griffin Brewery, which was owned by Sir Henry's father, uh, uh, they had even bigger ones there, even, even bigger ones. Uh, but th those have since been replaced by, I think they said they use concrete uh, vats. Now, so the porter is still matured in exactly the same way. It's just that it's now concrete lined. So that makes it a lot safer. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Da -da 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 -da. Just have a look through. Yeah. See, it's weird with all the children. It's like... Um, Oh, it's interesting. Uh, Elizabeth Smith, they've got her down as 27 years old, but I've also got her down as 35. Oh. Mrs. Butler was 58, 63 or 65. It's weird. It's like all of these. Mrs. Mulvey was 30 or 32. See, it's, uh, everything is vague. And yet with the children, I guess because their mothers were nearby, you, you know exactly how, like, uh, Sarah Bates was three years and five months. So three years and five months. And um, John Murray was exactly that was the son. He was four, and it is Anne Savile described variously as aged thirty, fifty-three, or sixty. It's a bit of a jump. Uh, just so you know, so um, uh, the, to, to the side of where the brewery is. So uh, obviously, the brewery was demolished in nineteen twenty-two, and they built the Dominium Theatre there. 
which for ages had the big Freddie Mercury, there's the, like a hundred foot tall Freddie Mercury standing on there. Unfortunately, it's not there anymore. Uh, apparently, it's in Roger Taylor's back garden or front garden. Anyway, uh, so that's there at the front side of it, where the front gate was, not where the accident happened. And just to the side of it is uh, New Oxford Street. But obviously, New Oxford Street around this point didn't exist. So this is 1814. Um, after the explosion, they they got rid of uh, most of Bainbridge Street. Ooh, got burpees. Uh, and they constructed New Oxford Street. That was in 1847. So if you see photos of the um, uh, the Horseshoe Brewery, I've posted a few online. Uh, photos of the Horseshoe Brewery, and you see a side street going down there. That's New Oxford Street. So these are much older pictures. Uh, I've put a photo online of the Horseshoe Brewery, but I, it's not dated. But I do believe that it's kind of... It's probably later 1800s than than uh, early 1800s because the photography is pretty good on it, uh, and also the, the a lot of the the carts that the people are driving outside they look quite Victorian, so uh, that's the only way you really can date it. Uh, George Crick himself uh, he didn't live too far away he lived at 215 Tottenham Court Road. Uh, what else is there? It's weird, I, I used most of the information, so there's not a huge amount I can put in there. Uh, not, to, not to spoil one of the questions, but they said that it was... They were unsure exactly the amount of beer that was lost that day, which is weird, because you think you would know how much you've got in the barrels, but they said it was anywhere between 128,000 and 323 imperial gallons uh, were unleashed on the street. I won't say how many that is in pints because that gives away a question. See, I'm getting good. Uh, as mentioned, I mean, it's unsure that there was the big vat that broke. And then, as mentioned, it's knocked off the stopcock of the next one, which opened that vat. And then it went, it ruined loads of hogsheads of beer and barrels and casks. And it went down into the cellar and it flooded the cellar. And then it broke, apparently broke another vat as well. So apparently this was a huge explosion. Um, what? else was there I, I don't think i have a huge amount of information left to give because i have put most of it in the episode uh interesting story about mr goodwin at 23 great russell street who was having tea with his family and was swept out into the street by the by the flood of beer uh, apparently that happened to quite a few people. There was quite because it was tea time. There's a lot of people sitting in having their tea and stuff like that. Quite a few people were trapped in their buildings, unable to get out because of the rubble. Um, uh, so yeah, luckily, as they say, most people were kind of still at work. So uh, so most of the houses weren't weren't occupied at the time. Uh, what else is there? I think that might be it. I think that might be all the information. Just have a final, final look. Uh, yeah, as mentioned, you know, um, there's a lot of talk. Uh, if you read a lot of these stories, there's some incorrect accounts where people go, oh, it was joyous. People were running out into the streets and they were going, oh, look at all this free beer. And they were getting all these you know, bottles out and they were filling their bottles and going, wow, free beer. Fantastic. But it, it didn't happen. Um, they uh everyone was you know everyone knew that a lot of people were injured and trapped it was quite shocking at the time um and as they said you know even during the rescue effort every everyone was quiet everyone was listening out for people's cries you know there was no there was no pissing about by people 
Yep, three workmen were uh, dug out of the aftermath inside the building. They were all fine, one of whom was um, George's brother. Um, but no one really... Uh, no, oh, another one called was called Patrick Murphy. Uh, and they're all taken to the Middlesex Hospital, which is basically about three streets away in Fitzrovia. Not too far away. It doesn't exist anymore, the, uh, the Middlesex Hospital. Uh, as mentioned, yeah, quite a few watchmen at the brewery gave people kind of uh, let people come and look at the uh, the destroyed beer vats. Um, there's some reports in the papers that some some people were like using it to make money, but from from most of what is heard, uh, quite a few people were there, you know, using it to afford to buy those who were dead your money uh sorry to give them money to pay for the funeral costs because obviously they're all poor they couldn't afford it um and Savile and her child apparently were buried in st giles but um those graves aren't there anymore unfortunately uh and there's quite a few graves that were in and around what became new oxford street so they were removed as well the tombstones that were there were removed as well so uh, many of those who died here you know we've no idea where they are or what what where their bodies are now uh, as mentioned uh, more people died in this than in the great fire of london um this is the uh, great fire of london of 1666 not uh the other great fire of london's because even though people say the great fire of london it's actually the great fires of london because there's three in total there's, i think there's two before the the main one uh only only this one because of uh there's a lot more written accounts of paintings of it that's why we know it a lot more um so yeah more people died in this than in the great fire more people died in this than were recorded as having died in the great fire of london great fire of london if you look at it not a lot of people died because the fire was quite slow moving and what it was about was it was moving and what they need to do was knock down buildings to 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 make fire breaks but people were saying you're not going to knock, knock down my building so that's why it kept moving but it was slow enough that people would you know people could move away from it uh there was no criminal charges brought against uh sir henry mayu or uh mr young because it was deemed an act of god according to the trial uh the exact words they used were um the jury returned a verdict and they said that all uh, they all met the deaths casually accidentally and by misfortune also known as an act of god there you go that's nice so uh therefore because it wasn't a criminal trial therefore it only was an inquest it didn't have to go to the old bailey so basically they just said right um who's at a loss here um uh, and they said it was Mayo and Co. So the company, uh, they were able to refund the company £23,000 as mentioned. Uh, and there was a private petition to Parliament, obviously, because he's Sir, whatever his bloody name is. Therefore, Parliament gets involved rather than for the poor people. Uh, and they recovered about £7,250 from Her Majesty's excise, which saved them from bankruptcy. There you go. So you go save the, uh, save the rich people, not the poor people. Poor people, they didn't give a crap. All of them lost the, where they lived, their personal possessions and their families. Uh, where was... There was... Um, three of the bodies lay in state at the ship, which is on Banbury Street. It's a pub. Uh, Mr. Hearn, who owned it, put out a collection plate, as mentioned, to pay for the funerals. Um, they raised uh, £3, 5 shillings and 7 pence, which is quite a lot of money for them. So that was able to pay for the funerals of uh anne 
Uh, Anne Savile, her son John, who was already dead, uh, but he still needed a grave. Um, uh, Elizabeth Smith, Mary Mulvey, and her son Thomas, Catherine Butler, and uh, Eleanor Cooper as well. And the two young girls as well, Sarah Bates and Hannah. Uh, doesn't really say what happened to uh, Mary Banfield, who was the mother of Hannah Banfield. She was the one who was uh, pushed out of the window, the first floor window. She was found in the street unconscious and badly broken. They said she was almost close to death. There's no report of what happened to her, so we don't know any more about that. Uh... Um, the future of Mayu Brewery, uh, as mentioned, they were nearly bankrupted by the event, as you can appreciate. You know, they were, they lost the, I'm trying to not give away stuff, but they lost about a thirtieth of their, of their revenue, uh, in a single day because of that. And obviously all the damages as well. So they got a rebate because of that from the government. Uh, the brewery moved from the location in 1921, which is, uh, the Dominium Theatre is now built on that site. Uh, as well as a, there's a hotel there and a little conference centre as well. Um, and uh, Mayo and Co. Won't, Mayo and Co. went into liquidation in 1961. Um, uh, so. Uh, yes, uh, 1921, Mayo and Co. moved their production to Nine Elms Brewery in Wandsworth, uh, which they had purchased in 1914. Um, uh, what else we got? I think that's it. I think it's oh oh. Um, there's, the only the, the only memorial there really is. Um, uh, there's a local pub, the Holborn Whippet. Uh, does an anniversary special ale every year to commemorate the uh, uh, the, the flood, and that's the only mention of it really. Uh, yeah, it's a bit sad. You, you think, or but then again, as we've said many times before, do you know, if it's rich posh people, they get statues. If it's poor people and they've done something great or they need to be remembered, they're forgotten. So. Oh, right. How many statues do you see where it's always a, it's always a general, isn't it? A general or lord something or other. And you think, you haven't done anything. You've just sat on your fat ass like a, a hundred miles behind loads of young men that you sent off to go and die. And then you call it a victory when thousands are dead. And you go, ah, oh, thousands are dead, but we killed more of them. And it's like, it's not really heroic, is it? Anyway. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's me being anti-British. <laughs> anyway, let's do the answer to the questions before I forget. So, question number one. <gasps> how long does Porter, how long does a Porter by Mayu and Co. take to fully mature? It takes uh, 10 months to a year. These the ones the ones that exploded have been there for about ten months, so they still had two months to go, roughly. Uh, question number two: What was fourteen-year-old Eleanor Cooper doing in the backyard of the Tavistock pub? Uh, she was a she was a servant. She was also well, uh, as mentioned, she uh, I didn't mention it in here, but she was also kind of the barman, uh, a bar person as well. She was only fourteen years old, but you know that was allowed. But what she was doing, she was washing the pots for the pub at the water pump. Lots of peas in there. Uh, question three, not in the pots. Uh, question, although the water's so bad, there's probably a lot of pee in it. Question three, name one of the five hidden rivers under Lon London, which I mentioned. So there's 21 hidden rivers under London. They're still there today. 
Um, but obviously they've all been covered over and we don't really need them as much. Uh, one is the Tyburn, the Kilburn, the Fleet, the Westbourne and the Woolbrook. Uh, I think I can't remember which one it is. I think it's I think it's the Westbourne that uh, comes out. There's a I saw a picture of it the other day. It's coming out of the Thames down. Oh no, uh, no, it could be the Kilburn that's coming out of um, uh, the Thames, and it's it's just like it just looks like a sewer pipe. And they're like, no, no, this is the outlet for the uh, the the river itself. It's quite sad that they just kind of not really thought of it anymore. But they're still there, still there today. Um, question four kensington averaged obviously if you don't know kensington is meant to be a posh part of town but it, i think it's pretty i think it's a bit scummy i think it's a bit crap i think it's had its day uh kensington averaged roughly 10 people per acre but how many people were squeezed into each area each acre of the rookery well according to reports uh it was roughly 200 souls according to the report i read it was about 220 ish per person so uh 10 in, 10 people per acre in the posh part 220 in the not posh part obviously this was the really really bad part you've got soho which wasn't in a great state at that moment uh but immediately opposite is the rookery and that was the really really rough bit um uh, question five the inquest took place at the St Giles workhouse, but as mentioned in an earlier episode of Murder Mile, which other child would end up dead at the hands of an officious little man who worked there? The name of the child was Charlie Chergwin. If you remember, that was the episode where uh, the the mum was trying to get her, her, her children somewhere to sleep for the night in a in a vac in a, a, a workhouse uh, she needed to work they needed a place to be dry and it was cold outside and uh, there was an officious little man i can't remember his name now and he was like no you can't stay here i don't like you you're a bit of a drunk and then uh, charlie ended up um getting pneumonia uh question six how heavy was just one of the iron hoops it's 700 pounds uh, question seven what was the weight of the vat that broke it was 571 tons that's pretty big uh, how many pints of beer were unleashed that day uh, I've kind of rounded this up a little bit to get it to this figure because obviously as mentioned the figure is kind of all over the shop they couldn't but it's roughly they reckon about a million pints of beer which is the equivalent and i've done the maths on this roughly half of an olympic sized swimming pool so if you imagine that you imagine in within just a few seconds a whole olympic half half of an olympic sized swimming pool just erupts in a building that is huge so that shows you the power and the force and the devastation that can be unleashed uh and obviously this is a porter so it's a heavier liquid it's not water so yeah hence hence it could just destroy buildings uh question number nine uh what was george crick's brother's name and what did he do as a job his brother's name was john and he was a labourer at the Horseshoe Brewery. This is good. I don't think I gave away any of these answers in the extra mile bit. Question 10. As featured in an earlier episode of Murder Mile, which younger man shot his father, 
his deaf sister and his disabled and his disabled brother as well as himself in a building immediately opposite the horseshoe brewery so immediately opposite the horseshoe brewery is uh, well the front entrance of the horseshoe brewery uh, is the primark and there used to be the lion's cornhouse tea room and in there jack tratsett uh, murdered his family in april 1945 that was the young man who uh uh, war was almost over but he was going slightly mad and he and he thought because his sister was deaf and his brother was disabled i think his brother had cerebral palsy he and he hated his father he was came to the decision that all of them would be better off if they were dead so he, he was in the restaurant and he decided to shoot them all dead <sighs> right that's that episode done that's good Whoa. hope you enjoyed that Right, I've been waffling on too long, so I'm going to shut up. I'm going to shut up and have a tea and have some biscuits. And it's stopped raining now. <sighs> Bloody typical. Bloody typical. Anyway, uh, that's all good. Hope you're all safe and well and having a good day. Stay safe. Be good. Be happy. Enjoy life. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.